This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. I met Glenn on Monk's Mountain. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by composer David Lang, whose opera The Loser will be presented at L.A. Opera Off-Grand in February. Underneath the whole thing is this real sense of of something that I think is present in the lives of, of many musicians, which is that the study of classical music is so intricate and powerful that you have to spend your entire life dedicated to it dedicated to practicing, dedicated to knowledge, dedicated to study, dedicated to incredible sophistication. You have to spend all of this time and effort before you are able to see in yourself if that effort was worth it. David Lang spoke with me via Skype from his studio in New York. We talked about what he calls solving musical problems, also what draws him to compose for the dramatic stage, and how opera in the 21st century is a lot like experimental theater. I began our conversation by asking David Lang about his association with L.A. Opera and the Off-Grand series. Well, this is my second project there. So my first one was Anatomy Theater, which was, I guess what, two years ago, three years ago, something like that. Um, and I, I think it's a really great idea to say, um, you know, we have this kind of flexible situation where we can place works elsewhere than our normal home in places that are appropriate for them, because then, you know, it means that we can do, um, you know, kind of more fun and more site-specific things. And both of the pieces that I've done there have been really um you know, they really needed kind of unusual setups. So the first one, because we sold sausages and beer and made a public hanging in a gallery. (laughs) That's really hard to do at the music center. And this one, because the way I've directed it, you know, has a a kind of, um, you know, weird way. I'm not sure how much I want to reveal, although probably everybody knows it already, but, you know, um, but um, but it, it, it's going to really take advantage of the fact that the Ace Theater is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if people haven't been inside <laughs> that theater, um, you know, just the, what the architecture is like inside is just absolutely stunning. So are, do you respond to that kind of space at all? I mean, obviously the piece was already written, so. I'm not really, um, I don't really respond to space that way. You know, mostly mm-hmm. what happens is I, I, I try to think up fun problems and then look for places where those problems can be solved. So I didn't think, um, oh, here's a great project for, for the Ace Theater and now I have to design something for it. Or here's a great piece for, you know, um, a space that looks like that. My thought was, wouldn't it be amazing if I could do this kind of thing? Where's the best place to do it? Yeah, yeah feel that way it's not just about you know my directing it's it's about um my composing too you know it's like i i, I often start with thinking about um a kind of abstract problem and then try to figure out musically the best way to solve it so give me an example of that um i, I suppose as it relates to this piece so like what what sort of abstract problem did you create for yourself as you as you set out to write the loser well the in, the interesting problem with this is that you know the um it's a book in the first person. It's one character where this one character is very smart, not nice, very rich, 
has a very weird history and a very weird life. And he's essentially yelling at you for 250 pages. It's one paragraph long. And it goes back and forth in time, sometimes several times in the same sentence. Um, so the the problem was when when I read this, you know, I could really understand who the character was. I, I, I had to read the whole book out loud to myself in mm. one which was amazing. It was, you know, sort of my own performance for myself to <laughs> the tour de force. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a really unbelievable book. It's really incredible. And, and, and my opera, you know, does not do the book justice. You know, it's a really, um, it, anyone who, um, who comes into contact with it through my opera really should read the whole thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's really amazing. But yeah. the most incredible thing about it is, um, is the creation of this character, you know, um, how powerful he is and how um, conflicted he is about everything in his life and how untrustworthy he is to us and to himself. And so um, when I read it, you know, I, I thought, you know, the, this character is so powerful and that's really what, what opera does, you know, is opera, it, it makes characters come to life. It uses music to um, make the, you know, kind of background story, the emotional background stories of all these characters um come to life and so um the the problem was how do you make a performance work out of one character who's basically just yelling at you and um how do you do this you know and um and how do you make that theatrical so how do you do just enough in a piece of music in a piece of theater so that um, you can get the power out of opera, which we expect, without doing you know huge damage to the um, you know original um, meaning of the author. So basically, I think you know for this piece, you know, and I feel this way for a lot of my um, my vocal works and my my theater works is that what I'm really doing um, more than composing is I'm reading. You know, I'm reading this work, and I'm trying to figure out how to use music to make everyone a better reader. Of this text and you know I I loved this book so much it meant so much to me when I read it that I wanted to use the music to figure out how to get deeper into it and then that's sort of you know the genesis of the piece mm, that's so interesting you know there's something I don't know if it's just because we're so like plugged into the the social media life of of we find something cool and we want to share it with someone else but you know, this idea of like, you know, you encounter this, this work and, and you have to, you almost have to create something inspired by it, right? Well, if it's personal, you know, if your response to it is personal, then you want to use the tools to examine it that you usually use to examine the things in your own personal life. And so for me, that's music. You know, I, I, I use music to try to understand the subtleties about what I actually um, am going through in my world. And, and so it seemed like music was the way for me to understand this project better. Plus the opera is about music. So, and it's more in particular about the life of a musician. So um, I don't know if your listeners know this, but, um, but I, I can give you a one paragraph synopsis of it. I'd love that. You said you didn't, weren't sure how much you wanted to give away. So I I didn't want to lead you down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't want to give away too much about the direction of it because I got because, you. 
you know, I'm, I'm not a very um, skilled director. You know, I had an idea for how to stage this. Yeah. And so I think once you get past the idea, um, that's sort of the power of what I've done. So if I tell you what I did, um, that takes away the thrill of it, I think. But, uh, but you can tell us the story. But I can tell you the story, yeah. So and and maybe this will explain why the book was so powerful to me in particular, and you know, to musicians in particular. Um, the book is about someone who, in his youth, had been a pianist. He was a concert pianist, and he was good enough as a student to have been accepted into a master class taught by Vladimir Horowitz. But in this same master class was another student, a young Glenn Gould. And even though they're just students and they're all starting out, the the narrator, knowing that Glenn Gould is already better than he is and will always be better than he is, destroyed him and destroyed his hopes of being a pianist and destroyed his life and the life of another one of his fellow students. And um, and the first thing I should say is that um, the author, Thomas Bernhardt, um, has made up this character of who Glenn Gould is. So there's almost nothing about this Glenn Gould character in the story that's um, real. And in fact, one of the interesting and curious things is that you learn in the book of all sorts of ailments and injuries and problems and and personal details about the life of Glenn Gould. And with a little research, you find out, no, those are actually autobiographical things from Thomas Bernhardt's life. He just <laughs> imposed them on Glenn Gould. Glenn Gould never studied with Vladimir Horowitz. You know, a lot of these concerts that are spoken about, a lot of the illnesses, they, they never happened to Gould. You know, it's just completely invented. But the thing that I love about this book, which is so powerful, is this person, years later, Right. He's trying to remember how important it was that he met Glenn Gould and how important for his friend um, who met Glenn Gould. Um, and um, and all time is sort of um, collapsed back and forth. He sort of goes through the present, the past, the past when he is remembering something in the past from that past. It's very confusing. But underneath the whole thing is this real sense of. Um, of something that I think is present in the lives of, of many musicians, or at least is in, present in my life, which is that the study of classical music is so um, intricate and powerful and, um, and so um, historically um, rich that you have to spend your entire life dedicated to it, dedicated to practicing, dedicated to knowledge, dedicated to study, dedicated to incredible sophistication. You have to spend all of this time and effort before you are able to see in yourself if that effort was worth it. You know, you if you think about when you teach a three-year-old how to play piano, um, you don't know if that three-year-old is going to grow up to become you know, uh, the greatest pianist in the world. And yet we teach lots of three-year-olds how to play piano. And those people who stick with it have to spend their whole lives practicing, studying, loving this music, revering this history before they become sophisticated enough to know, um, oh, you know something? I, I don't have anything to offer. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be as good as everybody else. You know, you have to be so dedicated in order to raise yourself to the level to see whether or not you will ever make it to the level above that level. 
and um, and that is a really kind of heartbreaking thing that's underneath the life of every classical musician, I think. And so when I read this book, um, it just immediately jumped out to me that I understood this problem. You know, you have to be unbelievably sophisticated to know if you are sophisticated enough. What happens to you if you get to that sophisticated place and you realize you can't make it? And what happens if you never have that self-confidence or you are at the sophisticated place and you are capable of existing and thriving and being successful, but you don't have the confidence inside yourself to believe that. I mean, that that's the story of a number of composers throughout history, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. But I'm not worried about the personal narratives of the composers who make it. <laughs> I'm worried about the personal narratives of the people who struggle really hard and then find out too late they didn't make it. Sure. You know? And that's yeah. what this book is about. Yeah. I imagine you you know folks who who this has happened to. Yeah, absolutely. I know lots of people who um well, I don't know. I mean, I I I I I can't characterize for anybody else whether or not their lives are um you know, whether or not they feel like it was a waste of time or something, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. but have you ever had to have a conversation with, say, a, a student or something about like, you know, hey, hey, maybe maybe you need to think about doing something else with your, you know, with your life. And is that a difficult conversation to have? I've never had that conversation. And I don't believe that that's my place. Mm. You know, because I, I think that actually the point of composing is to learn better how to use music to explore yourself. And so I think that even if you are not um, going to do it professionally or you are not um, satisfied with where you are, you can still do that. So the problem comes when you're trying to share what you've learned about yourself with other people and about your expectation and about your... Um, ability to compare yourself to other people and, um, you know, whether or not you're able to make a career or whether or not you're able to get your point across. Yeah. Um, but the value of, um, of using music to understand yourself, I don't think that that will ever end. And, and so for me, I, I think, I think that that's, that is still just as active in the way I use music for myself, as it was when, you know, I was really young and I didn't know anything about music and I didn't know anything about myself. Yeah, yeah. Tell me how you use music in this piece. I imagine Bach makes an appearance at some point. <laughs> There's not really Bach. There's sort of Bach-like things which happen. I mean, one of the interesting things is you, you have um, a voice, right? You have, have one singer, so we have the amazing Rod Guilfrey. Rod Guilfrey comes out at the beginning. He is there till the end. You know, he is singing nonstop for over an hour. It's really an unbelievable performance. And the question in a in a piece like this, which has instruments, is what what do the instruments do? So normally in opera, the instruments are sort of like um, like the shadow of the story and the support for the story, and they propel the story. And there are um, there are interludes which allow people to come on and off stage. And there's there's basically a lot of um, music which is used to um, help the drama do its logistical things. You know, there are all these other things, right? There's no logistics in this piece at all. 
the guy is there singing to you and that's the piece. So, um, so the, the role for music was, was to be, um, as minimal a support for him as possible and to be as, as flexible as he is, you know, to be completely just, um, um, the barest minimum of what is needed to help Rod accomplish his task, which is to be this character. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it was a very interesting, um, and very kind of, you know, um, satisfying musical problem for me, you know, because if you do too much with the music, then all of a sudden, what's this guy doing standing there, you know? So you, in, in this piece, it really was just about using the music only to be the barest help to make Rod um, able to do what he has to do. Yeah. So he really leads then the, the score. Well, he is the score. He is he, the score. He, he is the score. You know, yeah. a lot of times what the, what the instruments are doing is they are, um, they're echoing him or giving him the most minimal kind of support or reflection. And again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's like, I, I look at these pieces as problems to solve. Yeah. And so this was one of the really fun things to me is, um, is, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing an opera right now and it has transitions and it has scenes where the choir sings something that tells us what to think. And, um, you know, it has this, you know, kind of pacing, which the instruments are leading. And so you use your, um, the story you were trying to tell to guide you to um, figure out what, um, what your musical options are. Mm. And one of the things that I really loved about this, which was so refreshing for me, was that it was the most focused and most pared down um, list of musical options, which I um, ended up allowing myself, just because that was what was necessary to tell the story in the purest way possible. Yeah, yeah. How did you uh, adapt the libretto? Is it direct quotes? And, and how much did you use from the book? I didn't use a huge amount of it. I did not change a single word. I didn't repeat anything. I didn't change the order of anything. I didn't change the punctuation of anything. I didn't change any names or any places or anything. I took the really excellent translation and I just cut out a few paragraphs that were enough to tell the story. Mm. And there are things in, um, in the book that um, that I cut out because I didn't think an American audience would um, would respond the way an Austrian audience would. This book is in translation from from German. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas Bernhardt had a real um, kind of love hate relationship with um, German culture and Austrian culture in particular, and so there are all sorts of incredibly. I mean, this is a very wealthy and very snotty narrator, and so it's <laughs> all sorts of really horrible things about. Um, about Austria, about Switzerland. I took all of those things out. I took almost all of those things out because there are huge sections of this piece that I think if I were an Austrian um, or a Swiss um, citizen, I would, uh, you know, I would be offended by them, you know, and they're in the book to offend me. You know, they really are, um, are um, poking, you know, the reader in the eye. If you are that, if you are from one of those places. Yeah. but I didn't leave too much of that in because I just, I thought that um, we wouldn't get that the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Is this character, the narrator, um, how do we identify with him? Do we hate him? Do we like him? Do we get irritated with him? 
he's a real person, and I think we are conflicted about him. There's a very beautiful scene, which is, you know, kind of the only thing in this opera that passes as a hit aria, which is where he um, he sings the little section where he remembers the first time he ever spoke to Glenn Gould. And it really is something of a love song. It really is something where he um, he he remembers exactly where he was when he had his first conversation and he and he recounts it for you and and he recounts it for you in the most beautiful and bittersweet way possible. And, you know, I'm a very minimal director and it's the only place where I asked for a particular hand gesture from the um, from Rod because I felt like it, it needed to be emphasized how moving this moment was you know he's not an evil opera character mm-hmm. you know he's telling a story he's telling the story about this friend of his who has just committed suicide his friend was in the same class right in the same master class with um with glenn gould and with um horowitz and so his friend is the friend who is referred to as the loser mm-hmm. so in remembering his friend, he is remembering who he was. He was remembering um, um, his relationship with Glenn Gould, his past, his present. And so all of these stories are, um, are colliding in this way to make you realize that he's a very complex character. So one of the things that I really love about um, opera is it, is it gives us this kind of emotional depth to words that we are hearing. You know, we feel the emotional power underneath who this character is. But one of the problems, I think, with traditional opera, with 19th century opera, is that we're used to um, having who these characters are be, um, I wouldn't say cartoons, but having them understandable. You know, there are people who are um, completely good and who are, who are people who are completely bad. There are people who are completely victimized and people who are completely victimizing. And I don't know people in the world who are like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, life's not really like that. Yeah, life is not really like that. And so I think one of the great things, since you asked me about the Off Grand series, is mm-hmm. taking a piece like this out of the opera house and putting it into a theater environment and shaking up the direction of it is a way of saying, um, you know, maybe we can see a piece with voices to be more like experimental theater where we are used to the idea that things are, um, are a little hazy in who these people are, that we may have conflicted feelings about who they are and who we are watching them, and that we may not be resolved um, at the end of a piece. Um, yeah, and this is, you know, one of my, um, you know, one of the things that's really satisfying about going to see opera at, um, at the Met or in a big opera house or whatever is that, um, you have a problem that's presented to you. There's an emotional problem with these characters. You know who all the characters are and you know when it's resolved and you know how it's resolved. Uh, it's happy, you know, they live, it's unhappy, they all die. Right. You know, and, um, and you know that, right? So it so the evening has a beginning and end. You know, you know, you don't need a scorecard, and you know everything. Um, you know, you 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 know what what makes it all satisfying. If you are using music to tell the story about real people, and in particular for me, if you're using music to figure out who I am, 
you know, I'm not a completely nice person either. <laughs> I'm not a completely evil person either, you know? So one of the things that's really fun for me, like in this opera, right, that I'm writing right now, which is really fun, you know, I am the good people and the bad people, right? So when I sing through the score to myself, I'm trying to figure out who I identify with, with each of these characters, you know, how I identify with them. So here's a bad guy. How am I the best bad guy I can be? You know, how does that make sense to me? And so what that means is that, you know, I think all these characters, at least to me, resemble real people. Yeah. And that's sort of what I want my... um my art to be with not just the art that um, I want to make, but it's also the art that I want to receive from other people. I want it to actually remind me of, um, of the world I really live in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think audiences want that from their operas too. I mean, there's the, the element of, you know, sure. You, you know what to expect when, you know, when you're talking about the characters in Verdi and Puccini, you know that you're going to get spectacle with, with operas from, the 19th century, but, you know, opera now, it feels like, you know, we, we want that sort of ambiguity. We want character. I mean, even in our, in our television and movies, we want characters where we're not sure if we're rooting f for them or against them or somewhere yeah. in between. Yeah. Well, ever since Arya Stark became a killer, right. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what to hope for anymore. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, Glenn Gould just bringing up the man to a, a classical music crowd. You're going to have people with opinions about this this artist, and those opinions tend to be strong opinions. There, obviously, there was so much in his life that that inspired this kind of reaction to him as an artist and as a as a human being. Have you heard from any of the the real? Uh, devout Glenn Gould <laughs> camps either side? Um, I haven't really, uh, because it's not really about Glenn Gould. You know, yeah. I mean, Gould is a major character. There is a place where Bach is called for in the piece. And I decided not to have any Bach and not to have anything that resembled Glenn Gould's playing and not to have anything that reminded you of Glenn Gould's music, because the whole Glenn Gould thing is, um, is a fiction. Yeah, uh, this piece, you know, but also I, I think that Glenn Gould in, in the mind of this character is um, he's a stand in for um, the life and freedom and um, artistic sensitivity that the main character doesn't have and the main character envies. So I think that's really what what comes across in the piece is that Glenn Gould is um you know, a kind of platonic thing for, um, for the main character here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your compositional life, you're writing in um, kind of all uh, musical genres. You're writing operas, you're writing film scores, you're writing concertos. What do you like most about composing for the stage, composing dramatic music like this? I really like text. And because you know, as I mentioned, I, I really feel like my job is to be a reader of these things, you know, so that I can think. I mean, I love to read. That's my hobby. I don't really have any hobbies, but if I had a <laughs> hobby, I read every night, you know, and, and I read a lot and I read anything. So um, I, I think that it's a really great way to, you know, kind of activate your mind and be um, in communication with someone over 
you know, great distances of time and space. And so I think one of the reasons why I'm so involved with theater and text and choral music is because that's what I need in order to be fully engaged with, mm. um, with these things that I read, you know, with text. You know, I, I get asked this a lot in the choral world, you know, because I've been writing a huge amount of choral music, you know, and the weird thing about it is I, I don't particularly like choral music. <laughs> I, I love lots of other composers writing choral music. You know, I love lots of music that has already been written. But the thing that I love the most about about choral music is that you have to set a text. You know, you don't have to, but but a lot of times you set a text. And so what that means is that if I want to spend my life using music to bring out what the emotional lives of words are, then I'm going to end up working with singers. So, and I love singers, so that's great. Mm. But it means that it's, it, it kind of, you know, that desire has kind of propelled me into the choral and vocal and theater world. And that's exciting for me. Yeah. You know, I really, I'm enjoying it. Plus, I think the other thing about theater, which is, which I'm, I'm learning more and more about is when you are writing instrumental music and, you know, that's what you're doing. You're, um, you're kind of flexing a certain muscle. And when you're writing vocal music, you're flexing a different muscle. And one of the things I feel in writing theater is that um, I find that everything I've ever learned is on the table. So everything, you know, storytelling and um, vocal writing and instrumental writing and pacing and um, drama and um, every opera I've ever seen and every instrumental thing, you know, every every single part of me, which um, has gone into making me the musician I am, for better or worse, you know, when you sit down and you're writing something for the theater, or you're writing an opera, all of those things are um, are in front of you as options that you get to consider. So, um, so when I'm writing now for instrumental music that has no text, I've started feeling in a way like some part of me is missing you hmm. know, because I'm not um, dealing with this other thing that I, I really enjoy. And when I'm writing a straight choral piece, you know, sometimes I feel like I, 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 I don't have the opportunity to use instruments to flesh something out or push it along or, um, or to deepen it. You know, when I'm writing an opera, I feel like um, my brain is firing on all cylinders. <laughs> and, um, and to me, that's, um, you know, really seductive and really um, uh, exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say that um, one of your choral works has been just really um, powerful and moving for me recently, especially in, in times of turmoil um, in our country, and that's Make Peace. Oh. Um, I, j I come back to that, that piece over and over and over again, and it's, I find it really comforting. So, Thank you. You're working on an opera for the New York Philharmonic. Is that the one you're composing right now, Prisoner of the State? That is the one I am working on at this very moment. And how's it going? I'm really having a good time. You know, I mean, it's, it's like you can spend years and years and years working on these pieces. <laughs> They don't have years to spend, so um, so I'm you know um, trying to get it done as fast as I possibly can. But I'm very excited about it. And again, you know, I feel like it's about readership. You know, I'm I'm really um, in. I'm reading this libretto. I'm reading other texts. I'm I'm putting everything together. I'm doing the libretto myself. Mm -hmm. uh, 
based on my rewriting of the original libretto Beethoven. And uh, I'm really having fun, actually, I have to say. I'm really yeah. enjoying it. How close are you to completion or any idea? It's hard to say. Yeah. I'm, I'm not that far. Cool. I'm not, I'm not that far from being complete, you know. I mean, you've got six months, so. <laughs> well, I have a workshop at the end of January, so I'm. Oh, so you don't have six months. I don't have six months, yeah, which is, <laughs> I mean, if, if I waited six months to give them the music, they would shoot me. They would, um, yeah, they would be yeah, they would They would be very unhappy. But, <laughs> but it's also really interesting because, you know, I wanted to do this piece because um, it is a political piece. You know, it's about a political prisoner. And unfortunately, we are living in an era where um, thinking about political prisoners is something we maybe need to do more frequently than um, in other eras. And so it's interesting to be working on a political piece when um, there's so much to pay attention to in the politics around us. So that's been really, I wouldn't say satisfying because I'd rather live in a better era. Right. But it's it's actually really nice to sort of have this music as a tool to kind of sort out my my own political feelings, which is which is useful. Yeah. Do you find that it things happen so quickly and there's so many stories and so many new events to pay attention to that that it can almost get distracting from the from the process of of writing or you just absorb it and and it comes out in the work? Well, I'm a news junkie. So mm-hmm. I always have been a, like a politics junkie. So, mm-hmm. you know, for those of us on a um, sugar rush, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think there's ever been a better time to wake up in the morning and go, well, now, how are we all doomed? You know? Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, um, so every morning I wake up, I, you know, drink three cups of coffee and, you know, read, you know, all the newspapers and, you know, read my Twitter feed and get totally, you know, miserable, you know, and then I get to work on this piece, which is about, um, you know, how to challenge power. Mm. It's been really um, kind of nice to have a place to put it. Excellent. Well, definitely looking forward to that. And we're very much looking forward to The Loser as well at um, LA Opera Off Grand. Thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brian. David Lang is the composer of The Loser, an hour-long one-man opera performed by Rod Gilfrey and also featuring piano soloist Conrad Tao and based on the novel The Loser by Thomas Berhard. The Loser will be performed at the theater at the Ace Hotel on Friday and Saturday evenings, February 22 and 23. For more information, visit laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.